Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. My guest today is Rebecca Richter, who is the Head of Strategic Communications and Stakeholder Engagement at the Australian Institute of Health and welfare. Rebecca has a wealth of experience operating as a communication executive across both the public and private sector. And in addition to her current role, she has worked at the Australian Sports Commission as the Director of Strategic Communication and as Media and Communications Advisor to Australia's Chief Scientist. She joins me in the studio. Rebecca, welcome to GovComs. Thanks, David. Happy to be here. In terms of strategy and strategy in government communication, it's often a difficult thing, isn't it, to land and to deliver because of the needs and requirements and responsiveness to ministers and other things. How do you go about baking in strategy into the work that you and your team do to, to assist the uh, Institute of Health and Welfare? I think it's it all starts with understanding who your stakeholders are um, and understanding, and that includes internal stakeholders, so understanding what your minister's trying to do, what your executive are trying to do and, and, and what you're trying to achieve, then understanding who you're trying to talk to. Without that, you can't really set a strategy. So if you don't know where you're going, um, you, you, you don't know how to get there. So I think the first most important thing is to understand who you're speaking to and, and also why, what, what the importance is, what you're actually trying to achieve through communication. And so in terms of your planning and, and pulling things together there, at the um, AIHW, what time of the year do you sort of sit down and work with your team to sort of say, okay, it's time to actually bring the strategic plan to life with the communication support? When do you do that? And, And how actually do you go through your planning? Uh, look, at this. sometimes it is a bit ad hoc. Um, we try and do it. Um, we release uh, about 200 reports a year. So we are... 200? Yes, right. 200 reports. So we are on the go throughout the whole year. So trying to find a bit of downtime, quiet time to do some planning can get tricky. So we do try to do the traditional kind of January when it's a bit quieter, when we're not really putting out any reports. Um, so we that that's when we try and do our main, main plan. And then we just, things move so quickly that that we do really kind of check in weekly on on where we're going. And as individual kind of projects or or more more high profile pieces of work come up, we will do planning for those particular projects as well. And so in terms of those 200 reports, if you're standing sort of, you've just got back to work from, from holiday in January and you're looking at the year, do you have reasonable visibility as to know, you know when those reports are going to drop or is it sometimes you've got a you know quick response? Uh, look, we, we generally have those planned, planned in advance. Um, we have a production calendar where everything, everything goes in. We have our kind of regular reports that we put out every year and we tend to know the timing around those. Um, and then we um, check in on a monthly basis as to what's coming up over the ne- next couple of months. We also publish a forthcoming release list on our website so that get that um, puts out um, two to three months in advance. So we're 
we're always checking in. Um, we do have date changes to, with various things that come up, yeah. um, obviously with, with certain reports. Um, so we always just um, check in as to as to what's coming up and kind of see what we need to really focus on over the next month or so. Okay. And in terms of that 200, I imagine that some of them are – uh, incidental, some of them are, you know, require the whole treatment, you know, the full yes. bells and, and, and whistles. How how many big ones do you have to sort of get away on an annual uh, basis? Sure. We, we Out of those 200, we tend to um, do media for around 40 of those. Okay. Um, we introduced a couple of years ago a streaming system. So we've got Stream 1, Stream 2, Stream 3. Okay. Our Stream 1 are releases and we probably do about, oh, probably about 20 or so of those stream ones a year, maybe a little bit less. And we try to um, – we put most of our communication effort around those. Um, and so it, it, the streaming system was predominantly introduced to, to help us with resourcing and managing workload. Um, so that's what we put our, our main attention to. Although we do do, even for our stream three, which are our more technical reports or, or very niche reports, um, we still will tend to do social media for those as as well. Um, so we have regular planning sessions in regards to social media to, to, to make sure we're covering everything off. Okay. And in terms of categorising, uh, you know, uh, stream one, stream two, stream three, how did you go about that decision um, in order to categorise it? Sure. It's bit of a, um, I guess, a risk matrix. And okay. um, so we look at what we think um, is uh, quite important to our kind of high-level stakeholders, so the minister, um, what we think um, will have a high level of general public um, interest. Yep. Um, also, we look at what's happening currently in the media at the moment, what's being discussed about, because there could be something that we think is won't be of that much interest, but something's happened you know, in, in media and is being talked about. So that may elevate itself to a stream one. Um, and then also um, if something's kind of... Um, got sensitivities around it, there's different views on a particular topic and we know there'll be lots of debate, we, we elevate that to a stream one mm. as well. So that's interesting, isn't it? Because of the importance of context in communication, it really can be that volatile, can't yes. it? All of a sudden something can be front and centre because yes. of whether you know what it, what it is. There could be an issue that's broken out somewhere and therefore something becomes very absolutely uh, so how do you how do you manage your team to be agile to be able to to move things around to reprioritize how do, how, how do you manage your team? Sure. So um, we have um, uh, planning sessions every week with different um, authoring teams, so our statistical units who are authoring the reports. And we have an initial planning session where we sit down with them, find out what the report's about, what's going to be included, what type of products. You know, is it, is it a PDF report? Is it an online report? Is it going to have fact sheets? Is it um, going to have infographics? Is it going to have data visualisation? So we kind of get – this is quite a few months out um, – we get an idea of what that report is um, and then we, we talk to them about what stream we think it might be. About probably six weeks out from the release of a report, um, my team will go in and check in and, and, and start working if it's going to have a media release. That's probably when we tend to start planning the media release and we'll also start to look at the environment. Um, I think that the team I have, are very they're very highly skilled and very good at adapting and, and uh, managing change at last minute. So it, it's, uh, you know, we think this is going to be a stream too, but, you know, even a week out it might change and, and, and then we'll just um, readjust and, and allocate more attention to it if, if something, say, is happening in, uh, you know, there's a, in media or social media, we'll, we'll be able to quickly adjust 
adapt. So it's about those regular check-ins and, and just keeping a, a scan on what's happening in the environment. One of the key challenge ch- challenges for, for government communicators, particularly people who aren't subject matter experts and don't have that deep technical scientific sort of background, uh, you know, their job is to translate and uh, to try to make it as simple and as accessible as possible. Uh, Sometimes that, that's a challenge when you're dealing with a technical yes. uh, producer <laughs> of information who may, uh, in fact, not agree, uh, may feel that more needs to go in or all of it needs to go in. How do you go about managing that sometimes tension but often, you know, the, the challenge of, of helping uh, you know, perhaps the scientists to be able to, you know, communicate more effectively? Yeah, that's a really good question. And and I guess it's something I, I've kind of always worked in this space, working with scientists and academics. So first of all, I think it's um, relationship-based. You need to have a good relationship. And my team function as a real enabler. We, we offer support um, and try and form those relationships based on, you know, when something's we like to do things for people to help help them out at various times. So when it comes down to it, we can maybe perhaps kind push of back push, push back. Mm. Um, we do a couple of things. We we work to, um, I mean, and, and at the AIHW, everyone's highly educated, very intelligent workforce. Um, so we have done some training in social media and stakeholder engagement um, across the institute. And we try and focus on why why we're we're focusing and and talking to our stakeholders. So we we explain the why, and that's really important. Um, being a statistical agency, people want evidence, so yeah. we we try and show them the evidence and understand you know why we're doing what we're doing. Um, that is really important. We also have. Um, a team that sits in, in in my unit as well, which we call authoring support, which work with um, the statistical units as they're writing a report. And their role is to help them um, try and get some of that messaging. Sometimes it's really important to have those technical terms and, and they need to be included in, say, a full report. But we, I guess, um, I, maybe it's a bit of compromise. Sometimes we go, OK, it needs to be in the report. But when we're doing, a say, a fact sheet, which is meant to be for the more general public audience, can we remove those technical terms and use something that's um, more aligned? So it's um, about building up trust as well um, and um, making sure that they can trust us um, and that we are going to be telling the story and, and the right story and being technically correct. We build in a lot of things. So, for example, when we do our infographics, we... Um, uh, develop them but check in with our statistical advisor to make sure if there's any graphical representations that they're statistically correct and we um, work with the units to, and, and they provide you know, final approval on all the statistical content and so they can see what we're putting out is going to be telling the right story. Mm. So really there's a there's an element of over-communication in lots of ways, isn't there, just to continue... Yes. Coming back, validating, testing. Absolutely. And making sure, and over time, confidence builds when yes. people know that you're there to represent their best interests. Yeah. Um, also, you know, we have a lot of respect for our statistical units. They're the subject matter experts yeah. um, and we really just um, try and make sure that they're aware of that. Is there a, an appreciation for the value that you and your team creates inside the agency? 
I'd like to think so. I think there is. Um, you know, so sometimes... Um, You're not just the colouring in department. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some people think that's what we do. No, look, I, I think there is. Um, uh, and I think one of the strengths of my team is that we have relationships across the institute at different levels. So, yeah, with my my colleagues, um, I, I, make, we, I make an effort and, and my team members also make an effort to have those relationships across the institute. Um, we also share the results. So, after a report's been put out, we provide a summary back to the units of, of what kind of media coverage and social media coverage they've got so they can see um, what because it is, I guess, additional work for them when we're asking them to look at social media content. You know, they've got another report to focus on or some more data analysis. So we are asking something of them. Um, so it's sharing back and, and, and showing them the impact um, that, the, that the extra work they've done is having. And how important is that, that you do go back and that you demonstrate the evidence and the results from the effort that they've made? I think it's really important. It's kind of answering the, so what, what why should I do this? Yeah. And and I, I guess some, often we will say, you know, the, there's no point in putting out a report if no one's going to read it. Yeah. So we're trying to show, and, and we like to showcase when we can see a really good example of people utilising our work. So go back and go, hey, this is great. You yeah. know, this person's used it for this reason. So I think it's important. Also for them, sometimes they've spent a year working on this report. So to um, be able to share with them and congratulate them on their work, I think that's really important. So in terms then of your team, what does it look like? How many people have you got and what do they do? Sure. I've got about, um, I think it's about six. I should should know that. Okay. Um, so we cover internal communication, events, sponsorship, stakeholder engagement, media and authoring support. So sorry, I've got about eight because I've just had authoring support come into my team. Okay. So um, I guess it's, it's, it's actually reasonably small compared to um, kind of the volume of work we do and and. We've grown a fair bit too. We're now, I guess, a mid-sized agency at above 500 staff. Um, there's a separate website and publishing team that has right. the graphic designers and, and do all the content management on, on the website. Um, but my team um, is social media, media, internal comms, events, strategic communication, stakeholder engagement. Okay. Have you have you taken the step into you know media-rich content such as videos, such as podcasts, such as other... Yes. Ways to tell the story? Yeah, we have actually. So we earlier this year um, we uh, implemented, started implementing a social media strategy which um, we're really trying to focus on that rich content. So we started doing animations. We've got some really good graphic designers um, that are doing that work in-house for us which is which I think is really valuable and, and um, you know, a great asset to have. Um, and we're doing a lot more... Um, GIFs and um, infographics as well. Um, you know, we've we've got a lot of information that we put out. So being able to, I guess, have those bite-sized pieces of information and get people's attention is really important. Um, and we've had some, I mean, it's early days, but we've had some really good results in terms of increasing our following on both Twitter and LinkedIn um, and also our engagement per post on, on the social media side. And so how important then do you put it down, that success, to that media-rich 
Bite-sized That's um, We found that it's the infographics and the videos that get the most engagement. It's really right. important. Um, yeah, so that's had a big impact. So we go through and look at, again, you know, you, there's only so much time um, and that you can put into things and we do so much. So we really go through and select which which reports we're going to focus on and, and do more content. We've also just started um, experimenting with boosting some posts as okay. well um, and we've found that quite successful um, in terms of increasing our engagement and followers. Would you expect that the demand for that media-rich content will continue, that it's likely to get more, that you're going to be asked to do more and that the audiences are going to need more? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I think um, people really value that that um, the media-rich content. I think it... Um, I guess it's it's more engaging, more interesting, and um, we've also established a, a podcast as well. Um, and um, we're you know just early days, so just starting to see how how that's going to. But I think it's really important. I guess there's so much content online, social media that you need to break through yeah. um, and grab people's attention. Yeah, interesting though, isn't it? Because when you when you sort of break it all down, um, I actually gave a, a presentation to a board in one of the big departments earlier today. And I made the point to them that, like, when you strip it all away, all the government department or agency is is like an information factory. That's, yes, what, yes. That's, that's really all they are, you know, whether it's around policy or program, services or regulation. It's just information connected, you know, needed to connect it to a particular audience that then, you know, hopefully they're going to react or respond and, yes. and do what you, you hope them to do. So in that environment where that demand is going to keep coming, um, that's what they've got. So they've got this great reservoir of information that they can move out into the um, into the public um, to to impact with citizens. How do you then see into the future around where government communications teams are going to be able to continue to add value? Because the way I look at it, I think the demand is going to keep going up, but people can only do so much. Yes, and so therefore. Does it then mean that we need to start building capability into different line areas so as that they can perhaps start to do some of that more rudimentary stuff themselves where they can use templates more effectively and and reduce the load on the central comms areas because it's quite simply you just won't be able to keep up. Yeah, and so I think that's really important and we've started moving in that direction. As I said, yeah. we've rolled out some social media training for yeah. staff, developed some templates to um, help the teams that are working on the reports, so our statistical units, to identify, start to be able to identify the key messages and kind of nuggets, as we call them, right. um, that will be interesting for, for social media. Like it might not be a main finding, but it could be a, quite a unique fact that could work well on social media. Hey, did you know right. X, Y, Z? Um, and so we've um, developed templates to help with that. We've developed training. So we are looking at, um, you know, getting the, the subject matter experts to be able to kind of pull out what they think is relevant and then we work with them to shape um, shape the messaging. And some people are quite keen and, and want to write the tweets themselves and, you know, we, we let them go for it. Um, obviously we work with them and it, it comes through us for, for, you know, in the end just Publication. to... Yeah, mm. and to make sure we've got all the hashtags and everything in there. Um, but... I think also for for our agency, we have a lot of people that are highly regarded in their area of expertise. So we see them as a valuable resource. Um, so we have started um, with some of our 
unit heads, which is at the EL2 level. Um, we um, are having them post particularly on LinkedIn yeah. um, and talking about a report they're doing and that's working really well because they have their own network. So it's it's extending at the reach from our corporate account and then um, that's working really well. And I think if people are interested in something, they want to talk about it and share it and so they're keen to do that. So instead of us going through a, you know, some of our reports are quite long, instead of, uh, of my team having to go through the report, if we can work with someone that can pull out and, and show us what's important, then that saves a lot of time and we can and develop more content that yeah. way. So that's interesting around that spokesperson model because, again, if we look at COVID and we look at the um, example of COVID because there's certainly the, – I think there's the, the the maturing of the of the government spokesperson, yes. you know, the independent expert who is, you know, Mr or Mrs Evidence, you know, yes. Mrs., Mr or Mrs Facts, you know, this is what we, we know. So as that – and I think increasingly that will become a more popularised. You know, the, you know, you will have that sort of political then bureaucratic sort of double act. Yes. Um, how then do you, or what risks do you see in that? And then what are the ways to manage those risks such that departments can quite clearly articulate that spokesperson model, build the capability through training and education and ongoing training and education so to, to make, you know, turn them not only from reasonably good to really, really good and, as you say, to build their own audiences. But then how do you manage that in the sort of political system that we that we live in and we operate in? Yeah, look, it, it can be tricky um, and um, I guess for, for the Institute, we're not a policy agency, so yeah. we're not recommending what government should be doing or promoting particular policies. We deal in Just data. Yeah. So um, we provide media tra- regular media training for our, our spokespeople and for us it's about um, making sure they're aware that even if they get asked about policy or what government should be doing, um, we spend a lot of time teaching them how to come back to just talking about what the report says and what, right. what the fact says. Um, look, in, in a policy um, department or a service delivery department, it, it is, I think, a, a lot trickier. But I think it's about helping people understand and, and helping making sure they understand the APS code of conduct and, and what they can say and to teach people how to... I guess not bring in their personal views yeah. or or get defensive about something, but just talk about the facts and and what is happening and being able to articulate the the, the messages. I think the other really important thing as well is um, helping people or teaching people to how to translate what something quite complex into something that people understand. Because I think it can be a risk if you get up there and, and speak in, you know, policy speak or data speak and no one yeah. understands. That's actually quite risky, I think, for, for departments and government. So it's about being able to um, talk in a way that people understand. And it's about, I guess, not having hard and fast rules. Oh, every person should be a spokesperson. You know, if you're yeah. a branch head or something, you need to be a spokesperson because not everyone's um, set up for that. Not everyone's good at that. Not every, and, and that's okay. And I think it's about recognising people's strengths um, and providing the support that yeah. they need. So in terms of that, do, do you see an expanding role for spokespeople within your, exam, uh, your organisation, for example? Are you likely to having more rather than less? Yes. You are? Okay. And if that's the case, do you think that's a... a reaction or a, yeah, a necessary response to demand, which is 
perhaps getting narrower, that you're finding that people are rather, they're not just looking for the wide story, they're actually looking for the narrow story. Yes. Which is what technology enables. You know, people can now choose the information, education, entertainment that they receive on what, devi- on what yes. device, at what time. And therefore, we're going from a broadcast era to a narrowcast era. And therefore, the necessary response is we actually have to stand people up in those niches in order to give the audience what they what they want, which is probably deeper. Yeah, yeah. understanding. Yeah. I, I think it's a bit of both. It's about, um, you know, resources as well. So our, our group heads, um, you know, each group will put out quite a lot of reports. So sometimes the group head just doesn't have yeah, that capacity do to, to do all of the media. But I think we saw, saw it and I viewed it as more of an opportunity as we have some really, really smart people that are really highly well regarded in their area of expertise. So it makes sense to me. Um, And that probably comes a bit from my background working with the chief scientists and other scientists um, and then at the um, Australian Sports Commission, which is now Sport Australia, we started using our experts within the AIS who are, you know, internationally renowned. And it's like, well, they really know what they're talking about. They have their own networks as well. So it makes sense for them to to be speaking rather than, say, the CEO who isn't an expert in sports nutrition. Um, so I think it's it, it's about an opportunity as well. We've got these great resources. We need to use it where, where people are happy and comfortable to do that and yeah. then we can provide the support to them. So in terms of then your priority and effort around the content creation, direct to citizen communication, obviously that's a key part of it, and then obviously, you know, the mediated um, uh, engagement through the media, how do you, you balance that Um yeah, that, that those those requirements, um, given that in many ministers' offices, particularly, you know, media still is you know what freaks them out basically. Yeah, <laughs> I guess we're in a, a unique situation. Um, while we're part of the health portfolio, um, I guess we're an independent agency, so we we have probably a bit more flexibility in regards to say a department where you know every media release needs to get cleared through through a minister's office. Um, for us, our primary stakeholders, um, you know, we have been set up to inform government um, to help them with their, um, you know, planning and policy um, yeah. for health and welfare issues. So they're our, our prime audience. So we do need to focus on them. Um, so sometimes there is a tension between, well, we need this report and this data for government, but then, you know, my team are coming in saying, but we also, um, you know, need to let the general population know about what's happening as well. So that's where my team come in and, and say so we might go, okay, well, we'll write a fact sheet for you so we can have something that is in, in more simple language and, and that is for that more general audience. So it's it's balancing that tension and I guess being able to pick which which battle is important to fight. Yeah, which one do we go, okay, we don't have time and resources, we're just going to put out that technical report, whereas this one we think there is a lot more general public interest so we, we want to have have some products that will work for them. Um, but also um, some of those more simple products are also quite um, relevant for the policy people in government because they might have yeah. half an hour to write a brief. So we just want yeah. those top line facts. So yeah. I guess we use a, a agile pyramid, which is about aligning our products, you know, attract, grab attention, more in-depth analysis. So having those um, variety of products and um, we spend a lot of time internally helping our teams decide what product mix is best. To, to get their messages out. So looking into the future, where do you see the communication function evolving 
inside government, given that you've had this sort of broader experience with the Sports Commission, uh, the chief scientist now at um, the Institute of Health and, and Welfare, take me five years into the future and tell me what does a government department communicate? What, what does a communication function look like in in five years' time? Look, and how is it different? How is to it today? different? Yeah. Look, I think what is becoming increasingly important is that we start to listen, not just put out information. It needs to be two-way communication. So, you know, back when I worked for the chief scientist um, and we one of um, her remits was to engage young people in science. So at the time, you know, Facebook was the, the primary social media platform for young people. I couldn't access Facebook within the department. You know, right. I had to set up an account on my phone and, <laughs> you know, all kinds of things. Things have evolved a, lo- a long way. You know, we can access um, Twitter and, and Facebook. Um, so, um, but it's about listening and understanding what people want to know. So for a long time, and I think government has come a long way in terms of listening um, to, to the citizens, but it's about giving people a platform to tell us what's important and actually taking the time to listen and consider that rather than just putting the information out. And I think um, things are, are really starting to move more in that direction and I think that's going to become increasingly important. And people are um, much more informed and can get access to information. So in some ways... Um, we need to make our communications simpler because there is so much information out there. So we really do need to, you know, yes, put out the big long report but have the kind of infographics and stuff just to showcase what is the most important takeaway. Um, so in terms important. of that listening, how do you set yourself up to do that? Is that just humility and a bit of a mindset or...? It is, I think it is a mindset. Um, and then in terms of how you actually listen, those obviously lots of different ways, you know, um, you know reviewing comments and yeah. in social media platforms, but having formal consultations. But it's also about, I guess, tapping into networks and getting your staff to talk to, to people and their networks and, and just finding out what's happening and, and what people what people think. So it's, it's interesting. You've, you've mentioned that probably, I don't know, maybe half a dozen times during the interview, this notion of networks and thinking about your people almost as nodes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And the way that you, that you look at your, it's not just the organisation, well, the organisation is the organisation and they have its networks and all the rest of it, but obviously you're clearly seeing that each of your uh, individual people is another opportunity to be able to tell the story about you know, the Institute of Health and Welfare. Yeah, well, one person can only do so much. One person can only, I guess, connect to mm. a certain number of other people. There are limits on, on what um, one person can do. So I think the more we network and talk, we're, we're going to be able to engage with more people. So with the when I was working for the chief scientist, um, one of her remits was to increase science literacy for, for the Australian people. Um, so we spent a lot of time trying to think about, well, how do we get people interested in science? Um, and at the time I think it was just when you know Master Chef and started kicking off so we started a series on the chemistry of cooking but um, we started then reaching out um, to the other scientific organizations and going hey would you like to write a piece for Chief Scientist website that we can also put out through social media on 
what your area of expertise is. And it was a, a benefit to both people. We got content, you know, and I had a very small team, so we got content for our website. Um, and then they got an opportunity. I And I guess the um, status of engaging yeah. with a chief scientist and reaching a different network. So I think that's another important piece um, of how government communication needs to continue to evolve is about working with each other across government and, you know, helping each other out and sharing messages um, and not reinventing the wheel. If someone does something good, I'm always happy to share what we've done or how we've done something um, because we're on the same boat yeah. um, and, and trying to do the same thing. Well, certainly, no question. And I think the, the model that um, the Public Service Commission is is sort of moving towards this notion of one APS, yes. you know, an enterprise-based um, approach, I think if we can be better... Uh, at that. That's here in Australia for all of you overseas. Um, I'm sure your governments are, are very similar. But it's interesting. Uh, yeah, we won't go on because we could go on forever. We, we could, could keep this conversation <laughs> going, but Rebecca's got to go back to work. Um, so uh, anyway, we'll, we'll save that for another time. We'll get you back again. Uh, but thank you so much for uh, for coming in today and oh, sharing welcome. your wisdom. Um, the purpose of the podcast is really just to um, share stories like that. Um, I've written down a half a dozen things here that I'm now going to go and apply to my day-to-day -day work, a couple of insights, and I know that that's the purpose really of coming on and sharing. Yeah. And for the GovComs Festival, um, it is coming. It is almost upon us, um, November the 17th. Um, preparations are uh, hectic, but they are going well, and uh, it's, it's just shaping up. And it's amazing that I think, uh, you know, Lightning has struck, you know, and we're almost what are sort of captured in it. It's lightning in a bottle almost that um, to see so many people from around the world reach out and want to get involved. And so we're going to have 24 hours of content on the main stage. Griffith University, 24 hours worth of education that is going to be provided to everybody. Um, and then there are probably another, I would say, another 50, 60 or 70 hours of content from not only Australia, but Southeast Asia, North Asia, uh, India, the Middle East, Africa, uh, Europe. Uh, and interestingly, um, the OECD, uh, and the, yes, they are our partners uh, for the GovComs Festival, but it's the, our partners for the festival are, is the innovation uh, area of the OECD. But um, I found out the other day, and I'm having conversations with them tonight, but the OECD proper has started to investigate um, and research government communication. Oh, so for the first time, yeah. for the first time, the OECD is now looking at the function of government communication, understanding that as a profession, as a discipline, that it, it you know, delivers necessary benefit. And I think it's great that That's it's now fabulous. on the agenda. So yeah. there is now going to be a line of work that we can all reach back into and understand and help to shape and engage. Uh, so that's really interesting as well. So you can actually, if you Google um, Open Government Communications OECD, uh, it'll come up and it'll tell you about the research. And uh, we are hoping, uh, yet to confirm it, but hoping that we'll kick off the GovComs Festival with a bit of an update on that research that they've done globally around government communication. So, Great. yeah, a nice scene setter, a nice yes. scene setter for the beginning of the GovComs Festival. So, uh, jump online, Google GovComs Festival, uh, jump in. First 1500 are free. And for those of you who are after 1500, I think it's 10 bucks or something like that. So, it's not going to break the 
the bank. Anyway, going to be a lot of fun. Looking forward to that. Thanks again to Rebecca Richter for coming in to share her wisdom with you. And thanks to you, the audience, for coming back once again. We'll be back at the same time next week with another great GovComs program. But for the moment, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the GovComs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes. 